For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, welcoming you to the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter by reminding you please to subscribe to the newsletter and all that stuff like subscribing on YouTube if you haven't already, joining us on Rumble, giving us money, and so forth. Now, off to court. No, Michael Mann hasn't sued us, at least not yet. But several Canadian provinces did go to court to challenge the federal carbon tax. And last week, that challenge went up in carbon-neutral flames, as the court ruled by a 6-3 margin that, in essence, yes, Canada does have a federal government. The ruling was more than a bit peculiar, including in being roughly the length of a major novel. In 405 pages and 107,102 words, it was considerably shorter than the brothers Karamazov, which is over 364,000, but it was close to the return of the king, 137-115, and it was long enough that you could fit in Shakespeare's longest play, which is Hamlet, three times with space left over for the comedy of errors, which this whole case arguably was. We know courts are prone to long-windedness. In fact, it's so bad the Supreme Court knows it itself, and it now produces case-in-brief summaries, including one here that warned explicitly, quote, due to the size of the judgment, you may get an error message when trying to access it, end quote. Yeah, in your brain as well as your computer, we might add. If brevity is the soul of wit, we're in trouble here, folks. But having said so, we actually agree with the court majority that... If climate change is a major issue, then because it crosses provincial and national borders, obviously the federal government can act. If it couldn't, it wouldn't really be a government. Mind you, we also agree with the dissenter who said yes, it can act, by not by creating these so-called Henry VIII laws that let the minister change the law under which he or she was originally empowered to act. And we don't agree that the court needed to go on and on and on and on about how climate change is real and Canada's harder hit and the Arctic's harder hit still and carbon is pollution and we're all going to die. The case was about jurisdiction, not about the wisdom of a policy. And Canada's Supreme Court is not a Greta Thunberg rally. Now, again, to be fair, a correspondent points out to us that the court does habitually take note of the underlying facts in a case and that in this case, the various parties did not dispute the facts. But then all the justices really needed to say was, quote, the appellants do not deny that man-made climate change is a crisis, end quote, instead of printing a Tolstoyan alarmist manifesto. Which brings us to the final absurdity. Because th this business about not disputing the facts means the formal position of the appellants was man-made climate change is real, it's menacing, and we can't do anything, never mind which suggests that their real position was, we want to be against carbon taxes without getting slimed as deniers or having to discuss the science. And the court slammed that one shut in their faces with quite a loud bang. So, all you Canadian semi-deniers are basically out of tricks. You need to debate substance or get out of dodge. And if it's substance you're after, we've got it here. Including about a new study out of Australia finding that virtue signaling signals virtue. The authors note with some annoyance that Australians consistently tell pollsters they care about climate change, over 80% as a rule, including a majority of conservative voters. But then, almost as if they were alarmist celebrities with seafront mansions, just on a less glittery scale, they don't walk the walk, including in the voting booth. And I think part of the problem here is simply that people have been bullied into saying the right things about climate when they know someone's listening, including a pollster. 
But another part, I think, is that they've been assured far too often that climate action is all gain and no pain. So when they're offered pain in the voting booth, they say, no thanks, I gave in the survey. And I also think this story illustrates the peril of alarmism becoming comfortable and complacent in its orthodoxy. And they're accustomed to winning debates without breaking a sweat and to having all the money. Which brings me to the Canadian government's new net zero advisory body, which has been set up to tell it how, it, how to do what it already says it knows how to do. And this seems a bit odd because there are already over 300,000 people in the federal public service at their disposal, and some of them have already managed to, you know, devise a carbon tax that withstood constitutional scrutiny. Still, 14 more lucky insiders get to go blah 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 at public expense, and lots of it. Lots of expense, the outfit has a $5 million budget, and lots of blah blah blah. Apparently it will, quote, draw on existing and emerging research, analysis, and technical expertise, end quote, and, quote, lead meaningful national conversations with experts and Canadians from coast to coast to coast, end quote, and, there's more, quote, provide ongoing evergreen advice that is forward-looking but grounded in the current realities of socioeconomic circumstances, available technologies, and global trends, end quote. Are you done? Nope. Giving the Supreme Court a run for its money, it continues, quote, provide advice on the most likely pathways for Canada to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, end quote. Wow. You already know they know how to do that? Then why don't they just tell you? Frankly, it sounds a bit oversold to us. But then again, $5 million is just peanuts to the alarmists who keep accusing skeptics of being on the make. There's lots more in the newsletter, as always, so subscribe, as I said. Including an amazing piece of anthropomorphic editorializing from NASA. And thank you to my American friends who pointed out that NASA is a place in the Bahamas, and NASA is the American government agency that just said, quote, our planet is constantly trying to balance the flow of energy in and out of Earth's system, but human activities are throwing that off balance, causing our planet to warm in response, end quote. Our planet is trying to do something? Planets try to do things? Jupiter, try to call your office. We've also got a piece from Willis Eschenbach warning about the limits of computer modeling. And it's interesting because it starts with him describing horrifying detail that he first learned his craft with punch cards and wired magnets. And then he dropped out of college, used a TSR-80, fixed apples in Fiji, and a whole variety of interesting things. Meaning he's not a climate scientist in the sense that he has exactly one college credit in programming, but he has written thousands of programs which makes him exactly the kind of informed outsider who can provide a useful check on the buddy system known as the science on climate. Including on the vital point about using parameters to make computers jump through warming hoops. No, seriously, the piece has a side-splitting anecdote about Enrico Fermi, Freeman Dyson's pseudoscalar meson theory, and Johnny von Neumann saying, quote, with four parameters I can fit an elephant, and with five I can make him wiggle his trunk, end quote. Oh, the fun they have in computer programming and physics. The newsletter also has a piece about how over in China, they're boasting about how they're building a network of world-class highways while Western economies fall apart. And I'm wondering how Greta Thunberg feels about China having the largest highway system in the world, adding 10,000 kilometers a year, and clogging it up with, hey, are those gasoline-powered cars? And the newsletter also has the latest installment of our feature on what scientists really say. In this case, that Northern Ontario was about 2 degrees Celsius warmer than it is now for a stretch of about 3,000 years, starting about 7,800 years ago. 
or as they put it, quote, modern analog reconstructions of average temperature from Holocene pollen assemblages of Charland Lake show temperature was about 2 degrees Celsius warmer than present conditions around 7800 to 4500 cal year BUP, a time period consistent with the Holocene thermal maximum HTM, end quote. And, curiously, thanks to weatherstats.ca, we can see that the average temperatures at nearby Timmins haven't changed much since that 4,500 years ago. So much for current conditions being unprecedented and calamitous. And meanwhile, at co2science.org, they're on about how dry places are likely to absorb more CO2 once additional CO2 greens them, thus creating a reassuring negative rather than an ominous positive feedback loop. And they're on about soybeans. Hey, it could be eggplant again, right? But seriously, folks, soybean, also known as glycine max, is a very major crop, an important source of protein for humans and for our livestock. And yet again, the finding is that more CO2 means more efficient water use, which means less hunger in places where it's currently hard to grow food. So, the future actually looks bright as you settle down with a soy burger and a Supreme Court ruling in three volumes. Or perhaps something that ate the soy and the IPA's new book, Climate Change the Facts, 2020. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I know what fun is.